Now, over the last month or so, though, we've been studying God's relationship to the nation of Israel as explained by the Apostle Paul in the Epistle to the Romans. Now, it's not uncommon for people, and especially those of us who are not Jewish. And I'm not sure that we really have anybody of Jewish descent within our congregation. We have in the past. But the rest of us were Gentiles. And so when we're reading through the book of Romans, we get to chapters 9, 10, and 11, and we end up like, well, why, why are these chapters here? Because Paul works through up through chapter 8 in explaining the gospel message. And he's given a very clear explanation of it by the end of chapter 8. And, and a thrilling thing, knowing that nothing can separate us from the love of God. When you start in chapter 12, you get all the application of being these things are true, this great uh, theology of salvation that he's explained up through chapter 8. Now we're applying it in dire- directly into life. So we look at 9, 10, and 11 and go, well, why is he dealing with Israel here for three chapters and all these intricacies and how does it apply to me? Well, it doesn't apply to you, so you think because it's dealing specifically with Jewish people. But there's two real important reasons that Paul has it. Number one, remember, he is dealing with a mixed audience. Those he is writing to in Rome are a mixture of Jewish and Gentile believers. And the Jewish believers have a great interest in knowing how is it that God is dealing with the nation of Israel now that the gospel message, the message of salvation, has gone to the Gentiles. What is the purpose of Israel then? They need to know that. So that's the first reason. The second reason, probably even more important, because it affects both Jews and Gentiles, it does affect us. Because there's a great question. How has God dealt with Israel? Is God faithful to the promise that he has given to Israel? Now why is that important for us? Because if God is not faithful to the promises he has made to that nation, then we cannot trust him to be faithful to complete the promises made to us as believers in Jesus Christ. At issue here is God's trustworthiness. If he is faithful to the nation, and if it can be explained how he is so, given that Israel has not responded to the gospel, and that God has now brought the Gentiles in and allowed them to be also included among his people who will give out his message to to all nations. If he can explain how that works, then we can understand God is trustworthy. His promises to us are true. He will keep them. And so we can have a confidence as we look into the future. So these are very important chapters. Now, we're now getting into chapter 11, And we find here that Paul is dealing with directly the question of whether God has rejected Israel or not. And that's important for us. It was to the nation of Israel, as Paul had pointed out back in chapter 9, verse 4, that God gave the adoption as sons, the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the services and the promises. Those were all given to that nation. But yet in chapter 9 and 10, Paul has been explained the gospel has now gone to the Gentiles because Israel rejected her Messiah. They had a zeal for God, but without knowledge. They continued to try to establish their own righteousness instead of subjecting themselves to the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. So by the end of chapter 10, Paul has pointed out from both the law, because he quotes Moses, and the prophets, because he quotes Isaiah, 
that God knew Israel to be a disobedient and obstinate people and that they would reject him. But even so, God was stretching out his hand towards them, a hand of love. So the question then comes up in chapter 11, verse 1, as Paul says here. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? What is the relationship? The word rejection here, apotheo, means to push away or thrust aside. We might even say cast away, like when you go to the dump and you throw it out. That's the word here. In this verse, his people refers to the nation of Israel. So in view of their disobedience and their obstinacy towards God, has God cast them away? That's the question. In other words, has God had enough of them and so in their rejection of Messiah, has he decided then, forget it, I'm canceling my promises, away with you. Has God done that? Now Paul's answer is immediate and strong. May it never be. It's the strongest way you can put it in Greek. We might uh, translate it as well as uh, in an equivalent of our vernacular, like, absolutely not. Impossible. Can't happen. Or I guess the kids would just say, not. Is that what they do now, Jimmy? You're going to have to clue me in, you know. I'm getting old and I'm losing touch with the younger generation. I think they just say, not. It it's cannot happen. Strongest way he could put it. God has not rejected his people. God keeps his promises. Paul goes on in verses 2 through 10 to give three reasons to prove that God has not and will not reject his people. But Paul also warns that God is going to severely chasten them and it will only be a small portion of the nation that are going to receive the promised blessings. Now this is also important for us theologically because there are many Christian groups that believe God has done away with Israel. And unfortunately, when they get to Romans 9, 10, and 11, they don't deal with the passage correctly. They end up with all sorts of analogies and gymnastics trying to get away from it. What is God's position with Israel? You can't be more clear than what Paul states here in chapter 11. God has not rejected Israel. Well, what proves it? Well, the first thing Paul says there at the end of verse 1, he says this, I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, I am living proof God has not rejected Israel. Well, why does he say that? Well, keep in mind Paul's previous history as Saul the Pharisee. And he was not a nice guy to believers, was he? He was so zealous for the law, he was a persecutor of the church, wasn't he? And he continued to do that. And in fact, he was on his way to Damascus to persecute the believers there when the Lord sovereignly intervened and literally he saw the light, didn't he? Okay? He saw the light. The Lord intervened to reveal to him, you are persecuting me whom you think you're serving. And Saul the Pharisee became Paul the Apostle. If Paul the Apostle could be saved when he was Saul, then there is hope for every Israelite. No one had rejected Messiah as much as he had. Yet God sovereignly intervened and he was saved. So Paul is living example. I, a Jew, a Jew of the Jews, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he says in another passage, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, I have been chosen. I am part of God's people, Israelite, and I've been saved. God has not rejected his people. I'm proof. So that's the first thing. The next proof Paul gives here in verse 2 
that God has not rejected Israel is based on the character of God himself. Look what it says there in verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. That's God's character. Whom he foreknew, he's not going to reject. The phrase, his people here again, refers to Israel as a nation, just as it did in verse 1. God's not rejected them. Now, we've run into this concept of foreknowledge before. Remember back in uh, chapter 8, 29, we had quite a uh, lengthy discussion of it. The concept of foreknowledge takes into account that God does not exist in the time box that we're in. We're creatures of time. We can't get out of it. We can't even conceive outside this box. Is there something that doesn't have a time element with it? Nothing that we know of. God's not in the box. He's outside of time. He created time. And in his foreknowledge, God knows what the future holds. He knows, as Isaiah 46.10 says, the end, he knows what's going to be down back all the way at the end from the very beginning because he's not in the box. Now we also saw in our discussion of chapter 8, verse 29, that foreknowledge and predestination in the scriptures are tied together. In fact, in Acts 2.23, the apostle Peter uses the cognates of the words for foreknowledge and predestination to refer to the exact same thing. They're yoked together. Foreknowledge invariably results in predestination. So God knew what the nation of Israel would be like and what the people would do even before he chose them to be his people. And so it was within his predetermined plan to use such a disobedient, obstinate people for his own glory. He already knew what was going to come. Now there have been many times in history that the nation of Israel where the majority of them rejected God. The vast majority of them absolutely rejected God. And yet, even in those times, God has always had a remnant that he has chosen that there would be those that would truly be following him. There was always a remnant. And that remnant demonstrated that God has not rejected his nation. He still has his people. In his foreknowledge, he predetermined there will always be a remnant. And that's exactly what Paul brings down as an example to us in verses 2 through 6. He will chastise his disobedient people, but he always has those he has chosen to remain faithful and true, a remnant within a disobedient and obstinate nation. So look at the example that Paul gives here in verse 2 through 6 to show this. He says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed thy prophets, they have torn down thine altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So in the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Now, the full story of Elijah's complaint and God's answer is in 1 Kings chapter 19. And uh, I'm not going to go through the whole thing. Most of you are probably aware of it. But just to catch back up, the essential stories are this. Elijah had just defeated the 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. It was a great victory. Fire had come down from heaven and consumed the offering that Elijah had gave. And no matter what the prophets of Baal did, nothing happened. And he slew them. He killed all 450 of them. In addition, Elijah had prayed earlier at God's command there'd be a drought. Three and a half years has been a drought. God now tells him, pray, and a great rainstorm has now come. The drought has ended. These are great victories. Elijah should be at the peak. 
But when evil Queen Jezebel hears about it, she's angry. Those were her prophets. Those were her people. And she vows that she's going to kill Elijah. And Elijah flees and runs off in the wilderness. Now at this point, Elijah's off in the wilderness and God is miraculously supplying Elijah with all that he needs to his food and water and everything through ravens. God's supplying the food miraculously. But Elijah is still depressed. And God asks him, what are you doing here? And now he gives his complaint. Voices his complaint. Basically, it's, God, I have been so zealous for you. I've worked so hard. I'm paraphrasing here. I've worked so hard. And there's nobody else. There's no one else. Your people have turned against you. They've rejected you. They've killed all the other prophets. I alone am left. I'm all alone, God. Well, God answers Elijah, but not the way Elijah, I think, would want to begin with. He sends Elijah to a mountain and reveals to Elijah a little bit of his nature, his power. He sends a great earthquake. The Lord wasn't in the earthquake. Sends a great wind. The Lord's not in the wind. He sends a fire. The Lord's not in the fire. Then in a still, small voice, he tells Elijah what he's to do next. He gives the command first. Elijah, you go do this, this, and this. By the way, there's still 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, 7,000 out of the whole top population is very small, but it's still a remnant, isn't it? Elijah, you're not all alone. So here's what you're now to go do. The very next thing that Elijah actually does is, at the Lord's command, he finds Elisha and anoints him to be the prophet who will follow him. He felt all alone. Was he alone? No, there was a remnant. Now, that's a story that every Jew that Paul was writing to would understand. They would be familiar with it. It's a perfect illustration that God always has a remnant. The time of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel were some of the darkest days in the nation of Israel. There were so few that had not succumbed to their evil influence that Elijah was unaware of anybody else that was still true. Is there anybody else that is following God? He felt all alone. He thought he was all alone. Those were dark, dark days. And yet, even in that time of gross rebellion against the Lord, God did not reject his people. There were still yet 7,000 that had not bowed to Baal. They were still true to the Lord. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He always has a remnant. It was true at the time of Elijah. Paul points out in verse 5, it is true in that present time, though Israel as a nation had rejected the Messiah, though a majority of all Jews had rejected Jesus Christ as Messiah. There was and still is a remnant that have responded to the gospel message according to God's gracious choice. Now Paul's mention here of God's grace in election of the remnant brings up again what Paul had said in chapters 8 and 9 about God's election and salvation. Salvation from sin is according to God's grace extending righteousness to those who will believe and not according to man's effort to attain righteousness for themselves. Paul points out here in verse 6, the very nature of grace demonstrates that salvation cannot come by works. It can't come that way. Grace is a gift. It is a gift that has... Uh, that is given freely with no basis of merit on the part of the one who receives the gift. 
It is a gift that is freely given without any obligation on the part of the one who gives the gift. If there's any kind of work involved in what is received, it's not a gift, is it? It's wages. If there's any merit on the part of the one who receives the gift, it is not a gift, it's a reward. Now, that's, this is no small point Paul is making here, and many of you understand this very well. You come from religious traditions in which grace is not defined this way, not the way the Bible talks about it. You come from traditions in which grace is defined as something you receive for your religious work, a religious practice. You do this and you get grace for doing it. An example of this would be Roman Catholicism, and a lot of you come from that background. In Roman Catholicism, how is grace defined? Grace is that which you receive when you do the sacraments. Am I correct in that? Okay, that's how it's defined. Baptism, you get grace. Go to confirmation, you get grace. Go to mass, you get grace. Do penance, you get grace. Now, defining that biblically, that's not grace, is it? It is either a work, in which case you have done something, you're getting the wage for it, or it's something you've done to achieve merit for which you are getting a reward. The biblical grace is given freely by God to those who have no merit. And there's no obligation on his part to give it to you. That's grace. It's receiving something good that you do not deserve. That is the nature of grace. Now, Paul continues on here in verse 7 through 10 to explain then what God has been doing to Israel. In God's gracious choice, he always has a remnant. And because of that, he has not rejected his people. But here in verses 7 through 10, he explains again a third proof of why God has not rejected Israel. Look at verse 7. What then? That which Israel is seeking for, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened? Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened and see not and bend their backs forever. Well, what was Israel seeking for? Paul answered that question back in chapter 10, verses 2 and 3. They were zealous for God and seeking righteousness. But they were seeking a righteousness that they could establish for themselves through keeping the law and they were unable to obtain it. It's been pointed out many times in our study of Romans. No one can obtain righteousness through keeping the law because we always fail. No one keeps the law. It's impossible. Not even the law of conscience. You fail. And so the law then condemns because it is righteous and holy and the one trying to keep it is not. So it condemns you instead of justifying you. Those whom God has graciously chosen or elected have obtained righteousness, but on what basis? Not on the law, but rather upon God's grace extended to man in redemption that is in Jesus Christ, atoning for our sins. The righteousness of Jesus is imputed, or rather it's given to us on the basis of faith in him and his work on our behalf. In short, those who believe obtain righteousness by faith because of God's gracious choice. Those who try to earn righteousness for themselves, they're left to the consequences of their own failed efforts. 
They do not obtain it. Now, as Paul points out here, they are also hardened. Now, what does it mean they were hardened? That's often the verse people go to see. It's God's fault. God did this. It's his, he, he's made the sovereign choice. He hardened them. Therefore, they never had a choice. Well, that goes back to chapter 9, specifically verse 18, where he talked about this earlier. God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Remember, we went through that illustration twice already. It's not God that hardens the hearts of men in any unjust, impulsive, or whimsical manner. We've seen again, example of Pharaoh. God judicially solidifies the decisions already made by that person. That's hardening. Remember, Pharaoh hardened his heart, hardened his heart, hardened his heart, hardened his heart, until finally God hardened his heart. God didn't do it first. Pharaoh did it first and continued on until God basically sealed him in it. I've now hardened your heart and you will not change. You will not be able to, to repent. It's a judicial aspect of God because of the rejection of the pe- person beforehand. And so the same point is made here in regards to those among God's chosen people, Israel. They rejected the Messiah. They rejected God's plan for them. And so it would be proper for them to, God to harden them in their rejection. Now again, this is not something that came as a surprise to God. He knew all along this is what they would do. And so Paul's reference in verse 8 comes as an often repeated quote in the New Testament because it's repeated many times in the Old Testament. This is nothing new. The particular quote here is from Deuteronomy 29.4 and uh, Isaiah 29.10. I believe I put that in your notes for you already, the references. But that theme is repeated several other places in the Old Testament. Isaiah 6.9, Jeremiah 5.21, and Ezekiel 12.2. It's a constant theme. These Old Testament references demonstrate that the people were then no different from those many generations before. They had eyes, they had ears, but they wouldn't see, they wouldn't hear. The quote in uh, verses 9 and 10 comes from Psalm 69, 22 and 23. People today are really no different, are they? The idea of their table becoming a snare to them there in verses 9 and 10 is really a metaphorical reference to the Scriptures themselves. A person's table is a secure place. I hope your table is a secure place. You don't expect people coming barging in and stealing your food. It's your place. You, you eat there, you have sustenance, you enjoy conversation with each other. Well, among the Jews, it was very well known that it wasn't just supposed to be what you eat that feeds you. Remember, Jesus even quoted it, but uh, Deuteronomy 8.3, they were not to live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That was to be their sustenance. They thought they had life in the law, but the reality was it was a trap for them. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees in a very strong rebuke because of this? It's in John 5.39. He said this, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that bear witness of me and you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. You're busy studying the book, diligent, but you're not paying attention to what's here. You think somehow you're going to manipulate it like a a good lawyer can manipulate the law for his own advantage. I was asked by one of my my, uh, discipleship groups the other day, uh, why is it that people in various cult groups can be so diligent in studying the Bible, and some of them are, 
they, boy, they memorize Scripture and everything else. Uh, they'll preach, and yet they don't preach the gospel. What is it that keeps them from understanding what's there? The truth is, is they are no different than what Paul is explaining about the Israelites then. There's no difference. They are blinded. They have eyes. They have ears. They do not see. They do not hear. They read the Bible. They can analyze it academically. Some of the greatest uh, Bible scholars in that sense are non-Christians. Boy, they get into all the nuances and they're into the original languages and they spend their life doing this stuff. And they have no idea what it's talking about. But boy, they can give you every grammatical nuance of what it says and explain it academically. Then there are all those people that, uh, they're not in the academics, but boy, they will write these very mystical and emotional poems about God and what the Bible says here and there, and yet they're clueless about the message. But they're obviously very emotionally moved by it all. Well, what's going on? They can't understand because they're blind to the truth. And it's not God that has blinded them. God has not hidden from them. He has declared himself. It is the God of this age, as 2 Corinthians 4, 4 states it, that is blind. And that's Satan. He's blinded their minds they might, so that they might reject God's revelation. And as they continue to reject, God at some point will solidify that rejection and he will harden them. It's a judicial hardening. He's revealed himself, they continue to reject, and so he eventually will harden. God has not rejected Israel, though they have rejected him. God has brought the nation under his chastisement and he has condemned the unrighteous among them. But God always preserves a remnant among his people by his own gracious choice. God has not rejected Israel. In verses 11 through 24, Paul reveals that God has a plan for Israel yet. There's a plan in all of this. Even that rejection, God has a plan of how to work it for uh, good for all the rest of the, na- the world. Paul begins this section, verse 11, with a rhetorical question. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? Now the idea here, has the nation of Israel fallen to such a low state they can't be recovered? In other words, are, is their condition so bad that there's no longer any hope for them? And Paul responds again, as strong as he did earlier. May it never be. It's may Ginnata. Absolutely not impossible. They can be recovered. There is hope. And Paul is going to later show in this chapter God's future plan for the nation. We will get to that next week. But first he demonstrates there is hope by showing what God is doing even in the midst of their rebellion against him. Now the first aspect of God's plan that Paul reveals to us is this temporary setting aside of Israel works out to be God's kindness to us Gentiles. It's a blessing to us. Look there at verse, uh, into verse 11. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now if their transgression be riches for the world and their failure be riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Now this is not to say that God has not wanted the Gentiles to know about him all along. He did. That was a responsibility given to the uh, nation of Israel. There to be a kingdom of priests, right? They were to go out and proclaim the excellence of God to all the world. But they didn't do it. They held it in for themselves. They were ethnocentric. They wanted to see themselves above all people. We want to keep God for ourselves. That way we're better than all of you. That's what they had done. So God has set them aside and he has brought in the message to Gentiles who now can do it. And frankly, that's a personal thing for me. I'm not the one 
that should be preaching. should be a good Jewish person, person here, really. As you think about it, you go back to what that was in tribute to the nation. But because God has set them aside, he's allowed me, a Gentile, to proclaim the excellencies of him who has saved me. But he's done the same for you, hasn't he? He has enabled you to proclaim the same thing to all people. It's a gift to you. It's a kindness to you. It was something the Jewish nation was supposed to do. So they weren't, so he has set them aside temporarily and allowed us to participate in it. That's a great blessing and kindness to us. Paul adds here, though, at the end, though, if this is something that God has worked out in the midst of the rebellion, can you imagine what it's going to be like when the nation does what it's supposed to be doing? How wonderful it's going to be for the whole world when they actually do go out and do this? They're not doing it, and yet a remnant has. We've heard, we've responded. What if the whole nation was going out and proclaiming that? That would be fantastic, wouldn't it? And so that's what he concludes at the end here. That is a hope for the nation for the future. Riches have come from her failure. How much greater will the riches be when Israel actually does fulfill her God-given role? In verses 13 through 15, Paul expands on this, but here he places more emphasis on his own desires towards Israel. Verse 13, But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them, for if their rejection be the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Remember, Paul is writing to this mixed group, Jews and Gentiles. Most of these, through these chapters, he's been dealing to the Jews, hasn't he? That's been the focus. The Jewish people are interested in this. But now he brings it back and he addresses us. So you can say, hey, he is talking to us too. To you Gentiles, understand my heart in this. I am still concerned. Now, Paul had become an apostle of the Gentiles because of the rejection of Israel to the Messiah. Remember Paul, after he is sees the Lord on the way to Damascus. He's trained up, uh, actually in the wilderness, uh, and he starts preaching. He's sent on his first missionary journey. What was his habit? He'd find the synagogues. That's where he always went. He'd find the synagogues. And he'd go to the synagogues and he'd preach to the Jews. Now, if there were some proselytes or Gentiles hanging around, that's great, but his mission was to the Jews. He did this over and over and over again. He gets over into Macedonia and he finds those he could find and among them are Jews. So he preaches to them, but they reject him. He goes down to Corinth. And while in Corinth, we find in Acts 18 that these Jews that hated the message so much up in Macedonia come down to Corinth and make trouble for him and stir everybody up. And at that point, he says, I'm done with you. I'm going to the Gentiles. At that point, his ministry switched. Now, he still believed and still practiced the gospel message to the Jew first. Right? Romans chapter 1, verse 16. And also the Gentile. But his focus of ministry was no longer trying to, just for the Jews. A major aspect of his ministry from this point on is to Gentiles. He's an apostle to the Gentiles. And his whole purpose here, he is believing and hoping that by doing this, some of the Jewish people will get jealous, understand that they've got something they don't. They've got a relationship with the Messiah and they're still looking for Messiah that someone's yet turned. His heart is still for the Jews. Yes, most of his ministry is to the Gentiles, but he still has a heart for the Jews. Remember what he said back in chapter 9? That if he could wish himself a curse, that that would save his fellow Jews, he would, he would wish that? That's a heart 
to bring them to salvation. A giving and a sacrifice of themselves for their salvation. He still has that heart. But tragically, they have not responded. And yet, Paul is still hopeful towards it. You know, there is a lot of Christian leaders that have been anti-Semitic over the years. There are many around now that are. They believe that Israel has been set aside. Therefore, we don't need to deal with them. We can actually hate them. There have been Christians, not just ones in names only, but those who actually had a relationship with Christ who've gotten trapped into that. Every Christian should have the heart of Paul, not the heart of anti-Semitism. God has not rejected his nation. They are still his chosen people. We should have a heart of Paul in desiring to see God's chosen people come to their Messiah. And that's what Paul ends here, this, this great hope. Think about it again. If the setting aside the Jews has resulted in the message of reconciliation going out to the world, then how much more so will it be if they accepted the message themselves? For the individual Jew, they would be brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. They'll fulfill their purpose in proclaiming the excellencies of God to, to everybody. But for the nation as a whole, if they would all turn, then they would be that people that God had always sought, who would proclaim him as a nation. A holy nation is what they're supposed to be. Now that is going to happen in the millennium and we will see that next week. But that's Paul's hope. Among true believers, there is no room for anti-Semitism. We should be the best friends any Jewish person ever has because we understand what God has for them and their special privilege in being God's chosen people. Well, Paul warns us in verse 16 through 22, as Gentiles, and that's who he's writing to here, take heed and take warning. And he gives quite an analogy here, pretty graphic, to bring about the point. Verse 16, If the first piece of dough be holy, the lump is also. If the root be holy, the branches are too. And that's a very simple uh, premise. We all understand that. Any of you who do uh, baking or something, you know if you take part of your big lump of dough and it's got one characteristic, the rest of the lump is the same way, right? It's taking a sample. Uh, John does a lot of chemistry, right? And he takes samples from this stuff. He is sampling to prove what the rest of the batch is like. That's all this is saying. The sample demonstrates the nature of the whole thing. If you have a tree and you have the roots and you know what the roots are, you know what the tree will be. That makes sense too. Now, most of you probably aren't really great at root identification. You may not even be that great at identifying the plant itself. But if you were good at root identification and you knew this root is this kind of plant, you know what tree is going to grow from it. Period. That's what he's saying. Now, but verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive, were grafted among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Now that's quite an analogy and it's quite pointed, isn't it? God planted 
a holy root in Abraham who became not just the father of the nation of Israel, but the father of all who believe, Romans 4.11, regardless of their physical heritage, the father of all the faithful. The nation of Israel was founded as a holy nation. They were the branches that sprung out of the root of faith of Abraham. However, they did not bear the fruit that God sought from them. And so he broke off some of the branches. And he did it just as he had warned them over and over and over again in the Old Testament. All the way back in Deuteronomy, there was a warning of curses and blessings. The curses came. But note here that Paul is careful. He states that God broke off some of the branches. Not all the branches. Some of the branches. That's important. It has proven a benefit for us. We were grafted in, but he has not cast away all of Israel. Again, this goes back to saying, God still has a plan for his people. There are still a remnant. There are still branches from that original root. Original branches, they're still there. He's not done away with them completely. But the warning here to us is direct. There is no room for us Gentiles to become arrogant and think that somehow we are better than the Jews who were broken off. It's not true. The real test of any tree is the fruit that it bears. If it doesn't bear the right fruit or good fruit, it's cast away. Don't think that God can't replace us. He has and He will. Think back through history. In the early centuries, right after Christianity was founded, the strongest places for Christianity were Alexandria, Egypt, a center of, of learning, uh, of great theology coming out of there, Jerusalem, and Antioch, all in the Middle East. By the middle of the 7th century, actually the beginning of the 7th century, Christianity becomes so weak, so fractionalized, so politicized, it was all about power, it wasn't about a true worship of God, that it was unable to resist the uh, Arabic Islamic forces that came in to destroy them. And it did so quickly. Jerusalem fell in 636, Antioch fell 638, Alexandria 641. That's a, a space of uh, five years. All three major patriarchal centers were gone. Why? That was a question I had in seminary when I was studying Islam. Like, how could this happen? And so quickly. Very simple reason. Why risk death for religion you don't really believe? Someone comes in, has a sword... Renounce God, proclaim Allah, or I cut your head off, what will you do? Oh, Allah! If you don't believe, right? But that's the whole point. The Christianity became weak. It died. But this is not just a religious military uh, conquest that breaks off the branches. Apathy will accomplish the same thing. It takes longer, but it accomplishes the same thing. Consider the state of Europe now compared to just 200 years ago. England in the 18th and 19th centuries was the powerhouse of missions in the world. Little bitty England was sending missionaries all over the world. 
What is the state of England now? It's a nation in dire need of missionaries going to it. It became apathetic. Christianity was no longer what the Bible had to say. It was traditions, rituals. It wasn't worth much anymore. The children rejected what their parents had believed. Pretty soon no one believed it. Consider the state of our own nation. After World War II, we were the powerhouse in missions around the world. That generation, they sent people everywhere. Those missionaries are retired. There's only a few of them left out there because they're older. They're still retreating. You had many that went out after Korea. But missions from America, the U.S., were retreating. We have missionaries flocking home or dying out in the field because they are old and they're not being replaced. There's a shift going on worldwide. The missions movement isn't centered here. It's shifted over to uh, Asia and Africa. Don't think God can't set aside. It's important for our nation because we have been a people that have think, well, we're, we're God's people. We almost think that sometimes. America is not God's chosen nation. He has blessed us wonderfully, but we can't become arrogant and conceited upon that. So we should understand these chapters of what Paul is talking about even more so. The branches can be broken off. There's no room for arrogance on our part. We Gentiles have experienced God's kindness even as we have seen God's severity upon Israel. So Paul properly warns us that those who depart from God's mercy in Jesus Christ will have their branch cut off too. Not you personally, but it's the generation that follows because they no longer believe. You've shifted away. And it usually takes only about two generations. And it can be a complete shift away for once what was once believed. And the branch can be cut off. Now, is there hope? Yeah, there's hope. Our God is a God of hope. And that's the wonderful thing about serving him. No matter how depressed we might get about, about their, our own nation, you could get, you get wrapped up in that. There's always hope. We aren't nearly the state of Israel at this time. They were utterly destroyed in 70 AD, but there's still hope. Why? Because the God that we have, there is always a remnant. So Paul concludes here in this section, verses 22, uh, 23 and 24, a hope for Israel. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more shall those who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? That makes sense, doesn't it? Just because you got broken off doesn't mean God can't prepare you and stick you right back in and you'll flourish. You belong there. I think there's an analogy here for us too. We belong there if we'll follow Him. It's a lot easier to graft a branch that is native to the rootstock than to graft something that's not. God is able to do it again with Israel. In fact, as Paul points out here, he will do so on this condition. They do not continue in their unbelief. That's an important phrase. If they do not continue in their unbelief, he says he will graft them back in. It's true for both the individual Jew and for the nation. There are many Jews around today that have understood the gospel message. They have placed their faith in Jesus as their Messiah. And remember, the word Christ and Messiah mean the same thing. One's Greek, one's from the Hebrew. 
They are following in the faith of their ancestor Abraham. The faith in, their faith in Jesus as their Redeemer has been reckoned to them as righteousness. There is hope for that nation's future. And there is going to be a day in which all of Israel will have that faith. They will not continue in their unbelief. There is a day coming when they all will have faith. We will see that in our study next week in Romans, the uh, last half of it. But again, that's always hope for us too. Even as Gentiles. The branch doesn't have to be cut off. But we must not continue in unbelief. We have a job to do. We have a job to proclaim Christ to everyone. We're going to be having communion here in just a moment. Communion is looking back at what Christ has done for us. It's a special time as we think back the sacrifice made so that we can know our God personally. A personal relationship. It's also a reminder of the message that we have to tell other people as well.